You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Allison Williams. She is CEO of Law Firm Mentor. We're going to talk with her about the work she does with law firms and helping them really figure out how they're going to grow and scale how are going to take their practice to the next level? I find that one of the challenges of service companies, particularly with people who are really experts in the work they do, it can be a real challenge. They love doing their work. They love working with clients. They love engaging in the work product. And it can be a real challenge to figure out how you're going to grow and scale a company like that. This is something Allison focused on. And I'm really interested in kind of hearing her perspective, experiences, how she got in this work, and then what she actually advises law firms in terms of how, they, how they're going to grow and scale the business. With that, Allison, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Let's do a little background first before we get into the work that you do. How did you get into law? How did you get into coaching? Tell us a little bit of the backstory. Okay, so I'll be honest with you. I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted money and power. I think that <laughs> is something a lot of people don't own, but I owned that. So I like it. I became a lawyer, found my way into family law, have been a family law attorney exclusively for 17 years, very highly credentialed. So I became a fellow of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, got to be known for handling child abuse cases, developed a statewide reputation and all that fun stuff and figured when it was time to approach my boss, my bosses, I should say, mm-hmm. for partnership, I figured, ah, it's a no brainer. I'm bringing you about 500 Slam grand dunk. a year. Yeah. You know, I'm doing I'm doing great things, getting your name out there. And they didn't say no, but they hesitated. And the hesitation was a little nerve grating. So I said, you know what, I'm done. So I picked myself up, me and my 43 clients and started up a place down the hallway thinking, hey, no big deal. I know how to be a lawyer. I know how to collect money. I know how to charge people. I know how to sign retainers. So I'll just go do that. And very quickly was overwhelmed with all of the minutiae that goes into the well-functioning of a business. And even though I had worked in law firms before, I had never been responsible for assembling all the pieces, getting the right people, doing the right things in the right way, on my schedule, in my way, with my process, without interrupting the practice of law. Mm -hmm. And figuring that out was overwhelming. And so what ended up happening was, after a relatively short period of time, I said, you know, this is for the birds. I'm not happy doing this anymore, but I've got to get a handle on it. So I'll just work harder. That was kind of my way, right? <laughs> Push. <laughs> right? Just work work harder, right? So 60 yeah. hours a week isn't getting it done, so we'll work 70, and then mm-hmm. we'll work 80, and then we'll work 90. And I capped out at 90 after I fired my third incompetent secretary after about three months. Ooh, damn. And finally said, you know what? 
I'll just be a secretary and a lawyer. So I decided that I would commute to work because I lived about 40 minutes away from the office, be a secretary from 6 a.m. to 8.30, a lawyer from 8.30 to 6 p.m., take a dinner break, shoveling in crap from 6 to 6.30, Uh and 6.30 to 9 p.m., I'll be a secretary again, get it all done, rinse and repeat seven days a week. Uh And that worked for about four weeks or so before... I got to the point of sheer exhaustion. I'm surprised you lasted that long, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, there's only so much no-dos and caffeine you can put into your body to actually exist without... Before it rejects you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So one day, by stroke of luck, you know, I had three cases on on a Friday, and I'm scheduled all over the place, and miraculously, they all got adjourned at the last minute. So Thursday, I was really excited to come to work on Friday because I thought, I'm going to sleep late till 7 o'clock in the morning, and I am going to leave at 7 o'clock at night. I'm only going to work 12 hours in a day. That was a light load for me. I was super excited. And Thursday, I decided to stay a little bit later so I could make sure that I gave myself the gift of sleeping in late on Friday. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was I was so pent up on the high of being able to get home and get a full night of sleep that I fell asleep driving home and woke up a quarter centimeter away from a guardrail very quickly realized that working harder was not working. Yeah. And if I didn't want to kill myself, quite literally, yep. I had to get a hold of myself. Yeah. Started working with business coaches, worked with various different kinds of coaches across the country, and was able to figure out with their assistance and with my own research and my own business knowledge, how to create a customizable system for a law firm that gets it to run without you. And once I had that under control, I could scale very easily. So I, I took a, an entity from zero dollars to a multi-million dollar enterprise in three and a half years. And from there decided that now that my business runs without me and I have a very comfortable lifestyle and a nice income and a multi-million dollar enterprise, I wanted to share that gift with other lawyers so that they could get out of the overwhelm that I was feeling and really start to experience the freedom of owning a business as opposed to having a job that has your name on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious in that process. I mean, I, there's, I find that in, anytime we're kind of figuring out how to scale a business, there's the strategies, there's the practical stuff, there's the process, the operations that you need to put in place. But then there's the mindset shift. Talk to me about what, what was the mindset shift that you had to go through in order to really kind of implement these things and think about your business differently and actually achieve that multi-million dollar status? Yeah, so you're right that it is the mindset much more than the strategy. And you know what people buy most often is the strategy, but what actually helps you is the mindset. Yeah. So one of the things that I started with that really started to optimize my performance was realizing that it wasn't working harder. It was looking at things from a place of expansion. So everything I did, I always looked at how can we get the person with the highest level of skill and the least cost to the business to do the work? And once we started implementing that general system, every time I touched anything, I looked for someone else to do it. Not because I was trying to abdicate, Mm -hmm. but because I was trying to expand the pie of what people could do. So once I realized that people had a lot more skill and aptitude than I was giving them credit for, and I could get them to do work that I thought only I could do, we started to see that everyone started to take things off of their plate and ultimately delegate down. And the more delegating down happened at various different levels in the business, the more work created. Because what you often don't see is that a lot of times professional services businesses in particular, they don't get to everything, not because they don't care about the work or because they don't have the skill set, but because they honestly just don't have the time. So they Mm -hmm. get into the habit of skimming the surface, just doing enough to not commit malpractice, just doing enough so that their clients are happy and not calling all the time. And 
you don't actually get into the deep work of serving a client. So a lot of times lawyers in particular will complain that there are adversaries that are overworking a file, quote unquote. And really what's happening is that lawyer has the time to do nothing but lawyer. So -hmm. they have the time to look for all the nuances and issue 5,000 subpoenas and go through 5,000 discovery documents and really analyze and evaluate and advise their clients. Whereas the solo or small law firm attorney doesn't have that time. So they don't take that time and they start to get into the habit of shortcutting everything. Yeah which works if you want to have a small business and you want to have a certain lifestyle that's a nine to five lifestyle around your limited income. But if you want to have a high income and create a nine to five lifestyle or even expanded beyond that for everyone in your business, you have to get into the habit of creating work by virtue of looking for opportunities to expand the work that you have. And when you do that, you give better service to your clients. You get happier clients that will naturally refer to you. So your business expands on its own. You don't have to go out and pay people to market for you. You can start to have that natural generation that happens at the core level. And you also start to create systems in the business so that a lot of your thinking goes to just doing the work rather than thinking about how the work is going to get done or hoping that when somebody else picks up the baton, that they're going to run it the way that you would have. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something in there I'd be curious to dig into, which is, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it. Something about the the right person to do the right thing at the cost that you can afford or at the lowest cost. It's an interesting one because I run into this a lot where there's always this argument or there's always this kind of feeling of, well, I could do this, but I can't afford I can't afford the best person. And and I think it's a interesting kind of shift on this to really think about this as being for the price you can afford. Tell me about why you put that in that statement and and how you think about this. Like, how do I leverage the people I have at what I can or what I'm willing to pay for that role? How do you think about that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what I would say is it's not so much what you can afford. It really is more how do you create the most value off of the activity that you're doing? So what I always tell people is that every role in the business needs to generate at least three to five times what you are paying the person in revenue to your business. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at a person that bills hours, it's pretty easy. Take the hours that they're billing, multiply it times the hourly rate, determine what you're going to collect of that revenue stream, and then they get anywhere from 20 to 33% of it, it. A- as a guidepost. Mm-hmm. But when you're looking at people that don't bill hours, like file clerks and yeah. legal assistants and, and marketing assistants, what you have to figure out is what they are going to produce in revenue. That can either be from generating more clients if it's in marketing or increasing your conversion rate if it's in sales or taking the time that somebody who could bill hours can bill more hours because they're taking tasks away, you can still apply that same math. And so what you do is you don't look to quote unquote afford the most expensive person. What you do is you look to optimize the people that you have. Yeah. And that's really it in a nutshell. I like that because I think at the end of the day, I mean, the way I look at it, you know, it's a strategic coach. I'm always looking at it as how do you sort of beat the competition? And one of the ways you beat the competition is creating more value for your payroll, right? So if you can get more value out of the same payroll than, you know, the person across the street, like you will win because you're going to force them to have to pay more to get that same level of service, but you're going to do it at a lower cost basis. And so that is a competitive advantage. And that's why I love this conversation around, like you have to figure out how to leverage it's maybe a little too abstract and humane to talk about leveraging your payroll. But, you know, you have to look at the people that you have and what are you paying them and how do you create the most value with that? Because if you just look at that as being, well, I can I can always kind of up that by hiring or paying more to get better people. That's a zero-sum game, right? Because you're going to be paying more, so then you're going to have to get more versus if you can get more out of them while not having to pay more, that is where you create real value. 
Yeah, and you know, I think that that's a really important point, Bruce, especially when you look at places that are glutted in terms of their legal marketplace. So if you oh, yeah. if you're in an area where it is very very challenging to find a good paralegal or very challenging to find a good associate, what you have to start to do is take people that have the aptitude. Mm-hmm. And aptitude is is what I consider to be one of the smallest components of what you're hiring, even in a professional services firm. You have to look at their attitude and their fit for your culture because I can train you on the skill of doing something. I can't train you you to care about your work. Mm. I can't train you to give good customer service. I can't train you to show up and show out with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So once I have a minimum basic skill set, right, you do have to be a licensed attorney if you're going to hire somebody for that role. Yeah. You know, but once you get the basics in there, then you have to figure out how to customize and systematize everything in the business so that the time that the person is taking is not time that they are spending trying to figure out where is the copier and who orders the supplies, but they're spending their time on the stuff that actually can remarkably increase their productivity so that in a shorter period of time, you get the most value out of them that you can charge a higher rate for because it's a better experience for your clients. Yeah. And so so how do you do that assessment of attitude and cultural fit? Like what's the process you use, the questions, the, the strategy for making sure that you've got a good you're bringing in the right people you know, foundationally into the business. Yeah, so there's lots of different tools that I recommend to people for that. One of the things that we teach at Law Firm Mentor is about how to create the culture that you desire to have in your business. And mm-hmm. not everybody wants a uniformly defined culture. Some people are very modern. Some people are very laid back. Other people are very systemized and structured and they want to be in button down suits. And either is fine as long as you're, as you're clear about that. But we teach that at a program called Thrive Tribe Tactics. And at that program, we actually go into an exercise that that shows you how to define the right attitude, the right aptitude and the right fit. But a lot of these principles, I can tell people if they want to know how to do that right now, you should go to things such as top grading. You know, of course, that's kind of the Bible on Mm -hmm. hiring. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I like to say it's like from the smarts, right? So we got top grading and we also have the who from Jeffrey Smart. Both of those books offer great resources on looking at the culture that you're creating, but also asking the right questions. And now once you have defined what you want your culture to be, you then have to be very, very definitive that every person that comes in has to fit that. And I think where lawyers make a lot of mistakes is they say, hey, this person's got a great resume. They can lawyer the stew out of a file. I'm going to bring them in. And yeah, they're not necessarily the right personality. They're a little Mm -hmm. bit more, maybe they're a a hardcore religious fanatic and we Uh are dropping the F-bombs in the hallways. Uh, Or maybe, you know, they're somebody who likes to come to work, work and go home. And we're a very social firm where we engage in activities to, to build the culture on a monthly basis that person is going to create friction and that friction is going to erode the rest of the business. So even though they're cranking like rock stars, they are eroding what other people's productivity was when they got there. And that tends to create more dissension. You tend to have higher turnover. Yeah. You have more frustration and you ultimately lose money that way. Yeah. So resisting that shiny object, great resume is really the key to making sure that once you have defined your culture, that you are clear about insisting that it be adhered to with every person that comes in. Yeah. Any strategy you have around the actual kind of interviewing process? Because I find that varies so much. Like as I go into businesses and, you know, some people do lots of interviews, some people do anyway. Some people, one person does all the interviews. Other people, it's like they have to interview the whole team. You know, anything that you've seen that's worked well in the businesses that you coach, that you work with in terms of just kind of how you approach the interviewing process. Is there anything structural that you put in place around that? 
Yeah, so I always recommend that people use a three-step process minimum for the interviewing process itself. So the very first interview is always going to be a phone or Zoom screen. This is just to figure out if the person meets the minimum criteria to be worth your time to have them into your office. And you're going to ask four questions. You're going to ask them, why did they apply to the job? You're going to ask them what their goals are and flesh those out a little bit. And then you're going to explore strengths and weaknesses. And in the exploration of strengths and weaknesses, you're going to ask for proof of what they say their strengths and weaknesses are. So if a person says, my strength is that I write really well and I can bang out a brilliant brief, then you ask them, tell me a time where you were able to identify that but for your writing skill, you would not have achieved the result that you achieved in the case. So that's not just, I feel like I write well, or someone tells me I write well, Mm -hmm. but I can clearly link my writing skill as the strength to an outcome that had a positive impact for a client. So once you get that first level of of questions out there. One of the things that really eliminates people in my view is at the weakness stage, most people don't like to identify their weaknesses. So they yeah. give you those BS weaknesses like, oh, I care too much about <laughs> my clients. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I love making money for my employer. Oh, I come into work early and I leave late. I love to work on the holidays. You know, so you have to resist the urge to buy those stories and really press them about weaknesses. So what I like to do is I actually give them an example of a weakness that I had to overcome, yeah. which is that as a litigator, I love being in the courtroom. So if I took an appellate case where I had to write a big brief, uh-huh. I rarely got around to getting it done on time because I was so busy running the court. I didn't yeah. have time to spend eight or 10 or 12 or 15 consecutive hours researching, writing, researching, writing, and putting together legal prose. Yeah. And one time I actually had a case that was dismissed at the appellate level because I waited so long to get it filed that they dismissed my appeal. Now I got it reinstated, but mm-hmm. had I not, that would have been malpractice. And mm-hmm. so I share that story to loosen up people to know that I accept that human frailties happen and we work around them. We don't just say no person with a weakness can come here, but if they won't acknowledge what their weaknesses are, they don't have the level of introspection or coachability that's required from my company. So they don't get an interview. Yeah. And I wish I could remember where I got this from or, or where I heard this story, but the idea of the anti-resume or the, the I can't remember what, they, what the phrase they used, but it was a, your resume is a list of all the things you're great at, all of your accomplishments. The anti-resume is all the things you struggle with, all the failures you've had and showing as a leader, kind of showing someone your anti-resume and having that, you know, basically having the conversation, but what would be on your anti-resume is an incredibly powerful conversation because it, it really digs into, look, these are the things I need to manage. These are the things I need to be aware of and I need to be careful of because that's what's going to get me in trouble. Yeah, you know, that's a brilliant point. And I think really what you're going to find if you implement that is that people are going to have so much resistance and fear around sharing any weakness that you're going to have a real challenge pressing them to get their weaknesses out there. And the pressing is something else that I highly recommend when you get to the in-person interview. So one of the things that I tell people all the time is by the time that most law firms end up hiring, they have held on for so long to the idea of trying to squeeze every bit of productivity out of the people that are there that they now are in distress when they hire. So they're desperate. And what they end up doing is they say, all right, I need a lawyer. They're going to interview a lawyer and they're going to say, hey, candidate, I need somebody who writes well. Do you write well? And the person says, oh, sure, I write well. <laughs> Good. And you're saying, great, check. Iron. And then, hey, I need somebody who argues well in court. Candidate, do you argue well in court? Oh, yes, boss, I certainly do. Check, right? And that process, even though I'm being a little bit flippant, yeah. that happens, that seeps out 
in more times than you can imagine. So I tell people you have to test skill at the interview. So one of the things I absolutely love to do when I'm hiring lawyers is I will give them on the spot lawyering to do. So I will say, here's a fact pattern. You're going to be the representative of the defendant. My associate here is going to be the representative of the plaintiff. And I want you to cross-examine my second associate here to show me what skill you have in cross-examining. And that shows me several things. One, it puts the person on the spot so they have to think on their feet. Mm -hmm. And for people that either love to over-prepare or feel a lot of performance anxiety without being super, super able in advance to have their their P's and Q's taken care of, they are going to have their own natural reaction to that. So you get to see how they feel and how they perform under pressure. Mm -hmm. Second, you get to see what they're actually able to do. So if that's a skill set that they're not strong in, they have to either confess that to you or as it is evident, they have to be able to handle that. And a lot of what we do as lawyers is poker face. So if you are having an emotional meltdown because you are not performing well, I want to know that you're going to be able to conceal that at least to a certain degree so that when you are upset, I don't have a fear that my clients are going to see you have a meltdown in the hallway or mm-hmm. some judge is going to see you crumble because you are not making the argument as eloquently as you would like. And that teaches me not just do you have this skill set, because again, I can teach skill set. But it teaches me whether or not you're going to be able to handle the pressures of a litigation practice, which is what I have. That's fascinating. Yeah, I always say that the only thing interviewing tells you is how well someone can interview. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't tell you how well they can do the job. And so the, anything you can do to actually simulate the actual work to be done, you know, whether it's context, whether it's the pressure, whether it's the technical skills, whether it's using the tools, I find is a much better indicator of, you know, how successful they're likely going to be in practice rather than answering questions, right? Because it's just, I mean, unless you're hiring somebody to do interviews, <laughs> interviewing does not not do well. Right. And, you know, look, I mean, some of this is just pure fun, but yeah. there's also a bit of it of, like you said, people know how to, they practice interviewing. So yeah. you have to get under the hood. And one of the things I always have my clients do at Law Firm Mentor is hire an assessment, you know, administer an mm-hmm. assessment to people that come in. And there's lots of ones out there. You know, there's the DISC, there's the Colby, there's the Myers-Briggs. The one that I really love is the Real Talent Hiring Assessment. And, you know, it's, it's found at realtalenthiring.com. I get nothing for promoting this company, by the way, just so that you know, but I think it's the most brilliant resource I've ever encountered because it tells me things such as how does the person manage themselves? How do they manage others? And how do they manage tasks? So I learn things like, does the person have low self-esteem? Does the person have issues with authority? Does the person tend to do things in their own way? Or are they a program systems type person? Mm -hmm. Are they able to manage stress? Well, how do they feel about the role that they're occupying in life? In other words, do they have resistance around being a lawyer in the first instance? Do they really want to be at home with a child or do they want to be pursuing another passion? And learning all of that information that isn't evident from the questions that you would ask in in an interview gives you the opportunity on the second in-person interview to follow up on what you learned the first time around premised upon now the data that you're getting from the assessment and putting it together to really dig under what the story is that you're being told to see what the truth is of who the person is. Interesting. So you recommend the assessment after the first in-person. So it would be the third, the second event, but which is the first in-person interview, then the assessment, then the second person interview. Correct. And then that final, that third one or the second in-person interview is really focused on digging into the things you've learned around the assessment. Correct. So, you know, there are three things that you're always looking for with a candidate. You're looking for attitude, aptitude, and fit. 
the attitude you're going to be testing at all of the interview stages. Okay. So you're going to be testing it in the screening, in the first interview in person, in the second in-person interview, which is the third one. But the aptitude, you're really going to test in the first in-person interview. That's when you're looking at the skill set. Can they argue? Can they present mm -hmm. the facts? If you're looking for staff positions, how do they do when they're performing, answering the phones? You know, can they analyze financial data if they're a paralegal? If they're a marketing person, what types of information can they tell you about what their KPIs are and how they can track data and what they're what they're comfortable doing in terms of getting a, a, a presence out there. But then when you have that final interview, you're really looking for the cultural fit. Yeah. So once you know that somebody can do the job and do it well from everything that you've gathered, from the screening interview, from the resume, from the discussion and the reference check with various different people at different lines, right? You're not just going to get references of supervisors, but you're also going to get peers and you're going to get subordinates if at all possible. Mm -hmm. Once you have that 360 look at a person, you then are going to be looking at, does this person fit with my company? So that's where you really want to get as personal as you can while still following employment laws, right? You can't ask mm -hmm. them things yep. like, are you married with kids? <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> but they're right. But there are ways to figure those things out, right? Yeah. And you start having a conversation with the human as opposed to the candidate. And when the human shows up in that third interview, hopefully in a, in a different type of setting, you know, you're not going to have them still in the office, you're probably going to take them out to lunch or dinner. Mm -hmm. You might even, you know, have different people involved in that scenario. Mm -hmm. But you're going to start to look at, does this person have the same values we share? Does the person have the same goals that we have? Is the person going to be supportive of the vision of the firm? Are we going to be able to build upon their skill set to bring in more people that they could share their skill set with to help advance the firm and grow faster? And that's when you start to see scalability through the person, not just their attributes, but also their unique qualities. Yeah. And I'm curious what your sort of target percentages are for success at each one of these stages. Or do you have, is there an ideal like number of people that make it through each stage of this or, you know, for the number of people that you kind of initially kind of screen to the number of people that are actually hiring ratios that you, you find are telling of a successful process? Well, I don't actually have like a specific percentage per se, but I will say that I always tell people your goal is to eliminate people. Your goal is not to look for the one. Your goal is to have an idea of what you want, to be crystal clear about that, who the person is, how they function, what they do, what they bring, what they add. And then you're going to allow yourself with that avatar in mind, because we talk about ideal client avatars with marketing, mm -hmm. but you also ought to have it for your employees. Sure. Yeah. Your ideal employee avatar is in front and center. And every person that comes into your funnel of your hiring process needs to be weeded out to the extent that they do not match that avatar. So I always say it's more out than in as you go, just mm -hmm. as you were looking at a marketing funnel where at the top it's super wide and it's super narrow at the bottom. That's essentially what you're doing when you're hiring. You're weeding people out and you're getting to that one or two, however many you're hiring at the time, you're getting to those right candidates based on that avatar. Yeah. And I'm, I don't want to lead you too much on this one, but like how, how often should people be hiring or looking for candidates or searching for talent? I mean, what's a good kind of mindset around you? Like, is it like, oh, I have a need, I should start the process or what's your, what's your strategy? So this is probably going to be a little controversial, but I say you are always looking for yeah. talent. <laughs> yeah. you know, there's never a time where my eyes are closed to what's in the marketplace and who yeah. might be an opportunity. Because the reality is, if I look for opportunity and it finds me, my attitude is, how do I make that work? Not, mm -hmm. do I have enough work to feed them? Can I afford them? Mm -hmm. When you start looking at what your resources are and you see finite resources and you try to fit a person into your finite resources, you are inherently going to stress your company. 
But if you look at people as an opportunity to grow, then every time a star comes into your line of sight, you say, all right, I got to go get that. How do I make that work? Mm -hmm. How do I shift resources around? How do I reallocate until I can grow? How do I hustle right now to start getting more bodies in the door? Does that person have a book of business that I can immediately start to generate more clients off of? Mm -hmm. And when you start to see it that way, what tends to happen is opportunity finds itself to you in a multitude of ways when you're not even looking. And next thing you know, you're growing by osmosis. You're not growing pursuant to a business plan where you're going to force yourself to hire someone at a certain stage or wait until you have a certain amount of business. Yeah, I think it's always the challenge, especially for service companies. It's like it, that talent ends up becoming the limiting constraint. So if you can really optimize the growth process around how do I recruit, interview, bring on, onboard you know, good talent, and then I can grow the business around that, I find tends to be certainly for the specialist, you know, where it's hard to find good people, that tends to be the best growth strategy because it's, it's that's a limiting factor in, a, in in many of many of these industries. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other thing to consider is that there are definitely times where before you feel that you have the ability to hire, you have the ability to hire. Mm, yeah. So a good metric that I give to law firm owners all the time is if you are still in the weeds, if you are still the lawyer who is doing the work and owning and managing the firm, once you get to the point where you have 25% of the work on your plate not getting done, meaning you are robbing Peter to pay Paul with your time, and you are shifting to just doing the minimum skimming the surface, 25% of the work goes going off of your plate is enough to feed another person because what's going to happen is Mm. that work is going to expand when they come in. And then when you have a mouth to feed, there's a part of you that that hustle kicks in and you're now seeking to bring in more work and seeking to get more clients through the door. Yeah. A little positive pressure and anything around the onboarding process. So, uh, you know, so we've hired, we've found somebody, recruited somebody, we've interviewed them. They're a good fit. They've got the skills. We can train them. How do you actually, or what do you keep in mind as you know, once you've pulled that trigger, they're now part of the company. What is your focus or what are the things that need to happen to make sure that that's going to be, you know, they're going to be successful in fulfilling that role? Yeah. So one of the things that I love to tell people about onboarding is that you want to build out your system for onboarding in different in different roles in the firm through various different learning channels. So people learn in different ways. The best way for a person to learn is to have the trifecta of audio, visual, and kinesthetic learning. Mm -hmm. So that means they need to be able to see something. So you want to have something in writing that they can read, that they can absorb the information. You want to have some form of guided tour, whether that is an actual person sitting them down and walking them through or a recorded video where they can actually hear the message of what they are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you want to have them work with the activity. So there is going to be some on-the-job training where a person has to dig into the weeds of the job and actually do the job in order to learn the job. So you have to build that into your process before it's critical that they be on the front lines, meaning you don't want to onboard a person at a time of distress in the business where, okay, I'm going to hire you on Monday and you're going to be in court trying a case for me on Tuesday. (laughs) There is a lot of that mindset of, yeah, put people under pressure, throw them in and see what sticks. And to some degree, I share some of that philosophy. But for the lion's share of what they have to do, the functional part of the business, they'll get there a lot sooner if they can learn the computers and the faxes and where where the things are on the electronic drive and how to use the technology in the business. All of that has to be layered so that they learn it in pieces, use it in pieces and start to grow their knowledge base. And then the actual stuff of what you hired them to do, whether it's reception, you know, paralegal, legal assistant, attorney, marketer, rep, you know, whatever the role is, they'll be able to ease into that role a lot easier if they have a systematized process that's built around what they have to know. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent. Allison, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? So we can be found at lawfirmmentor.net. All one word, no spaces, no dashes. And one of the things I highly recommend to people, if they're interested in learning strategies for scaling and growing a law firm, we have a podcast, the Crushing Chaos with Law Firm Mentor podcast. You can find us on all the major platforms, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, PodBay, iHeartRadio. We're everywhere. And there's also a link on the on the website to our podcast. So I welcome people to check that out. Excellent. I will make sure that the link to the website and to the podcast are on the show notes here so people can click through, get that information. Allison, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.